From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, it's Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. On today's program, senior producer Kevin Pina brings us an interview with Dan Kvalik. And later in the program, Kevin brings us a retrospective on People's Park in Berkeley. All this coming up straight ahead on the program. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Well, today we're going to discuss Ukraine and what's going on there from a kind of different perspective. With my guest today, Daniel Kovalik, who's an American lawyer and human rights advocate who currently teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. He graduated from Columbia University School of Law in 1993. He then served as an in-house counsel for the United Steelworkers AFL-CIO, the USW, until 2019. Dan is also the author of several books, including the most recent, his most recent, The Plot to Overthrow Venezuela, How the U.S. is Orchestrating a Coup for Oil, which includes a foreword by a good friend of this show, Oliver Stone. He also wrote what I believe is the prescient book, The Plot to Scapegoat Russia, which was published in 2017. Dan Kovalik, welcome back to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. It's been too long. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Kevin. Well, you know, I want to just say, you know, some of the headlines today are interesting. I don't know if you read that the IMF just approved a $15.6 billion loan to Ukraine. At the same time, I believe today, Russia takes the seat as the head of the United Nations Security Council. <laughs> You've also got... Uh, um, it's just amazing. Uh, you know, you've got at this point, Ukraine is 46.6 billion dollar expenditure on the U.S. books, U.S. taxpayer books, which apparently is now exceeding the cost of the war in Afghanistan, which, of course, is the longest occupation in U.S. history. And that was 43.4 billion. So. This thing keeps cooking. And of course, I've had my fill, as I'm sure a lot of people have, of the the feel good about the Ukraine war stories on NPR, National Public Radio. <laughs> and I wanted to do something different to sort of look at it through the perspective of a greater critique of the narrative that we're having in this country versus what you see as the reality there. But let me start with your book, the plot to scapegoat Russia, which you published in 2017. Do you see that as any in any way as having set the context for what we're seeing unfold in Ukraine today? Yes, I, I do. In fact, I wrote the book in 2017 because I feared that we were heading towards a war with Russia, that, that we were heading towards a conflict of the type we, we are in right now, we, where we are now really at war with Russia uh, through the proxy of Ukraine. And a lot of us, not a lot of us, a few of us saw that coming even back then because, well, for a few reasons. By then, uh, the government in Ukraine, which the U.S. helped put in power through an illegal coup in 2014, by the way, was already at war with its own people, its own ethnic Russians and Russian speakers in the Donbass for three years by 2017. And I was quite aware of that. I was writing about that even then. And uh, it was very clear to me that at some point Russia would have to respond to this, you know. And it was also very clear to me that this was intentional, that the U.S. wanted to provoke Russia. 
On top of that, of course, you had Russiagate, you know, which was a, a hoax. I think it's largely, if not entirely, been debunked. This claim that somehow Russia interfered in the 2016 elections on behalf of Trump. Uh, and that actually became the main propaganda point to really incite support for a conflict with Russia. And, and actually, it still is. I mean, even though it's been debunked, most of the people who believed in Russiagate to begin with either still believe it or even if they don't believe it, uh, the, the, the stink of that hoax, you know, lingers, you know, that is to say they still hate Russia. They may forget even why, but they knew they knew back then that there was some reason to hate Russia and Putin. So we're going to just keep hating them. So it worked. That propaganda effort worked very well. And again, I wrote the book in 2017 to try to undermine the Russiagate claims, to try to say that Russia is not our enemy. Um all in an effort, along with some other people, Stephen F. Cohen was saying similar things at, at that time. So was Oliver Stone, who you mentioned, who wrote, you know, he had his Putin interviews at that time. Uh, we were all saying, look, you know, we're going down a very bad road here. And uh, we have now found ourselves um, at the end of that road, not quite at the end, but way down that, that road in this present conflict. And if we're not careful, we're, we're going to be in a direct confrontation with Russia. So, yes, to, to put it bluntly, I, I do think that that book I wrote is still very um, applicable. Well, I, I, I called it prescient because I, I agree with you. And, and let me remind our listeners, you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio, and my guest today is Dan Kovalik. He's an American lawyer and human rights advocate who currently teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Uh, he's also an international human rights activist. He's uh, been to several places throughout the world investigating U.S. claims of human rights abuses uh, and refuting them, or at least bringing some some edge of sanity, I would say, to a lot of that. Uh, but, you know, it's I want also to also let our listeners know, you should look up somebody. If you think that this is just something from the left, you should look up John Mersheimer. John Mersheimer is not a leftist. John Mersheimer is a conservative political analyst, political scholar, who very much also has said that the U.S. provoked the war with Ukraine, uh, that it was an intentional provocation. Uh, I want to get a little bit into, into NATO, right, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And I was reading through the treaty the other day, Dan, and the United States government has mentioned, I think, five or six key moments in that treaty. And what becomes clear is that the United States government is and for me, this is another point of American exceptionalism. It is the official repository of all the documents. It's the officiator of what is legitimate, who gets to join. All of the documents have to be filed in Washington. It's at the center of what NATO is and NATO's find, founding in 1949. I'm just wondering, how do you see the role of NATO today, because there's also this presentation in the press of the evil Putin versus this alliance of good guys, which almost has a World War II motif feeling to it. Yeah, well, <clears throat> or maybe more accurately, I think it has the motif of the first Cold War, of the West versus the Soviet Union, which is why NATO was set up to counter the Soviet Union in the East Bloc. 
of course. Um, yeah, NATO today, first of all, is not a defensive organization. It is an offensive organization, right? So NATO was involved in the 78-day bombing of Serbia in 1999, uh, which mostly targeted civilians and civilian infrastructure, which many people either don't know or forgot about. Uh, and by the way, the, there were two time, two moments uh, in which that war could have been prevented uh, through peace deals. And in both cases, the U.S. intervened to prevent peace from breaking out, as they have now in the Ukraine, Ukraine conflict. We know that the U.S. has prevented a peace deal, which was you know, possible back in March of last year. But even before that, um, with the Minsk agreements, which were supposed to end the conflict between the government in Ukraine and, and its own people in the Donbass. And of course, the U.S. did everything it could to make sure the Minsk agreements were not uh, abided by. But well, well, case, uh, Dan, Dan, before you go on, explain to our, our listeners a little bit more about the Minsk agreement and what it is and, and, and why you feel that way about it. Yeah, well, first of all, so there were two Minsk agreements and they were agreed to and unanimously approved by the UN Security Council to end the war in Ukraine that started in 2014. And it was uh, a war in which the, again, the government of Ukraine and its armed forces and its right-wing allies, some neo-Nazi allies, attacked their own people in the Donbass, which I visited, by the way, last November. And in that conflict, 14,000 people died before February of last year. when 14,000. Yes. And that is a figure from the UN High Commission on Human Rights. This is not a controversial point, though, again, the Western press would like you to forget that that happened and, to, and that those 14,000 people died. They'd like you to forget those people in the Donbass even exist is the truth of it. You never even hear about them. Um, and so the Minsk agreements were agreed to in order to stop that war, to end it. And one of the, there are a number of requirements of it. Uh, one, of course, was that the government in Kiev would stop shelling its own people in the Donbass, uh, which never happened. They never stopped doing that. Um, and what we found out later, you know, one of the guarantors of the Minsk agreements, meaning one of the countries that agreed to make sure it would be abided by was Germany at that time. Uh, headed by Angela Merkel, the chancellor. Well, she recently said that uh, they never intended to abide by the Minsk agreements, that the Minsk agreements were agreed to simply to allow Ukraine to arm to the point where it could uh, fight Russia. She said that, and then at, right after she said it, former French President Hollande also said that. He said, yeah, that's right. Uh, Zelensky then said, yeah, that's correct. The, the, we, no one on our side, the West side, uh, took those agreements seriously and, 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 and never really intended for them to be abided by. So, and again, the U.S. never intended for that to happen either and never, certainly never prevailed on Ukraine um, to, to abide by that agreement. So, uh, but going back to NATO a little bit, um, so not only did NATO attack Serbia, of course, it also attacked Libya, also based on lies um, f 
from March of 2011, October 2011, and left Libya in a shambles. So Libya went from being the most prosperous country in Africa to the least prosperous. It is now run by three separate uh, uh, warring factions, and uh, slaves are now being sold on in open markets. Mm. There, it was a complete disaster. But this was a NATO production, of course. Uh, and now NATO, of course, is behind Ukraine in this conflict with Russia. So, what is NATO? I mean, and or the essence of it, which is your question. What is the essence of it today? I mean, frankly, it's an interest. It's it is a an instrument of U.S. foreign policy. So it's a projection of U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, it's not working for Europe, right? I mean, because um, the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia and this war with Russia has uh, fatally undermined some of the economies in Europe, particularly Germany's. And also, we now know from Seymour Hersh, and I believe what he's saying, uh, that the U.S was behind the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipelines, which, again, a German chancellor, Angela Merkel, desperately wanted and begged Putin for, because Western Europe is dependent on natural gas from Russia, even during the time of the Cold War, even when it was the Soviet Union. Well, and, and now, of course, we're seeing, we're seeing in the U.S. press, finally, an acknowledgement that the sanctions against Russia aren't working. And that, in right. fact, Europe is suffering as a result of the higher price of gas that they're importing from the United States. Exactly. And they will into the future because the Nord Stream is gone, you know, so they can't even turn. Not easily. They'll have to spend billions of dollars. Now, the, the, Nord Stream, the Nord Stream was a pipeline, right, that went from Russia to Europe. Yes. OK. And again, Angela Merkel was the one who begged for this, begged Putin. And Putin said, well, I don't know, in terms of Nord Stream, too. She begged Putin for it, and Putin said, well, I don't know. I don't know if we should expend money on this because the U.S. is just going to intervene and prevent you from using it. And she said, no, no, I promise that will never happen. Of course, bing, it happened. Um, so in any case, uh, NATO, uh, and again, NATO's support for Ukraine is not working out at all for the, our allies, our NATO allies in Europe. It's only working well for the U.S. defense industry and for uh, U.S. oil and natural gas interests, because now Europe's going to have to buy from them instead of from Russia. And that seems to be a big point of the conflict, that that's why the U.S. wanted this conflict. And well, uh, yeah, well, let me either, let me run listen to, okay. to, to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio, and we're talking to Dan Kovalik about Ukraine and his perspective about what's going on there today. Sorry, Dan, didn't mean to interrupt. Just want folks to no, know. No, it's okay. And he, either Western Europe didn't understand that these were the true goals or, or, you know, was too weak to resist. But that's where we're at. Now, of course, where there's major protest in France, uh, one of the demands being for France to get out of NATO. There's big protests in Germany saying the same thing. In Britain, there's smaller protests, but also anti-NATO protests there. People in Europe are waking up to the fact that NATO ain't working for them. <laughs> and, what? you know, so anyway, but but Americans have been misled. They think, oh, this is, you know, all, all of Europe's on board with this. Well, the governments have been. That is true. But the people are really turning away from it because it is not working for their interests. Again, it may be working 
for someone's interest, uh, but not the vast majority of the people. And it's not working for the vast majority of the people in the United States, right? We're sending billions of dollars out the door to Ukraine while our infrastructure is collapsing, while we have trains derailing all over the place, right? Um, while people are homeless. I just saw a statistic today that there's 1.5 million homeless children in America. Can you imagine that? We have no, no money no, to thir- help. Thir- 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 13, th- I think it's 15 million was the last figure I read. Of 15, people or children? Of children living oh, wow. in poverty in the United States. So living in poverty, right. Yes. 1.5 million ch- uh, homeless children. Right. So, But meanwhile, so we have money for Ukraine. And apparently as much money as, you know, is, is Zelensky wants, um, but no money for those homeless children, no money for uh, decent education or health care. Uh, so the vast majority of the Americans are not being helped by this war either, but a, at least a, you know, a sizable proportion of the country, I'd say about 50% more, give or take, are behind the war because, again, going back to the question about my book in 2017, because the 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 groundwork, the, the propaganda groundwork for this war has been laid for some time. Uh, and ironically, and you touched on this a bit, a little, um, ironically, it's been liberals who've been most impacted by that propaganda, right? Because the Russia gate was aimed at liberals because the claim was that it was Trump won through colluding with Russia, right? Well, so, well, 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 I have, I, I, I don't, I don't have any, any, any time for either political party, the Republicans or, or the Democrats. I got my own view about that, but this has primarily been coming from the democratic party. Yeah. This is a de- democratic liberal thing. And again, what, what is, what is tragic is that people who were, uh, you know, the liberals who, at least in the base, not 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 the party, not the Democratic Party, which has always been a warmongering party, but its base is is where the peace movement has largely come from. Right. 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 Uh, but that that has died. The, the liberal support for peace is out the window. And again, Russiagate largely did that. It's been very effective. Uh, that way at dividing so at, divi- at dividing that movement which w- once at least could agree that it was anti-war and of course that coming from the history of the vietnam war we could trace that peace movement right and now Absolutely. suddenly it finds itself divided over issues of how the democratic party is positing what is in the best interest of the united states yeah, at best divided if not fully behind the democratic party i mean there's very little room for debate about the nature of the war in Ukraine, about its origins, about whether we should be funding it. Very little debate amongst, again, the Democrats and the Democratic base. There's more debate amongst the Republicans, which, again, is a certain that's surprising and a little ironic. But that's <laughs> right. And we should, is, we, that, but we should also say that there are also some some Republican proponents of the war in Ukraine as well, oh, although they're they're not the yeah. majority, but they there are some very staunch supporters of the war in Ukraine. Well, let me remind our listeners, we were talking with Dan Kovalik about what's going on in Ukraine, his view of the situation there. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifico Radio. Now, you mentioned the Nord Stream Pipeline, which was this very long, intricate pipeline that was built between Russia and Europe to deliver cheaper natural gas uh, to the people on the mainland of Europe, right? Europe's mainland. And Seymour Hirsch recently came out with an article in February, right, last month, 
And let me just read this part of it right here. Biden's decision to sabotage the pipelines came after more than nine months of highly secret back and forth debate inside Washington's national security community about how to best achieve the goal of stopping the relationship, right? Between the economic relationship between uh, uh, Putin's Russia, as they call it, in Europe. How do you view this expose, if you will, of who actually sabotaged and bombed the Nord Stream pipeline? Well, I think it's powerful. I think it's compelling. I think it's one of the biggest news stories in decades. Uh, and yet it's been either ignored by the mainstream press for the most part or pilloried by them. Uh, and why is it important? For two reasons. First of all, let's put let's let's this is a, a very important point that I don't think people realize. Uh you know, you have Joe Biden and the Democratic Party who have claimed that they're the ones who want to protect the environment and and halt global climate change by limiting emissions, right? Carbon emissions. Meanwhile, if it's true, and I think it is, and I think people should read Seymour Hersh's Pulitzer Prize winning Seymour Hersh's article on this. If Biden did order the uh, sabotage of the pipeline, what he did was create engage in the greatest act of environmental terrorism in human history because that sabotage resulted in the release of 400,000 tons of methane gas into the atmosphere. Good. Methane is 20 times more a more powerful contributor to global warming than carbon is. Okay, so whatever Joe Biden does in his term of office and if he gets a second term, whatever he does ever, to limit carbon emissions will never come close to making up for what he did. Again, assuming he did it, and I do, in sabotaging the Nord Stream pipelines. People should be furious. People should be calling for an investigation, certainly, of who did it. You saw this week that Russia and China put a resolution in, uh, uh, in the UN Security Council calling for a uh, such an independent investigation and the U.S. and other countries voted that down. The U.S. doesn't want an independent investigation. People who care about the environment should want that investigation. The Greta Thunbergs of the world should be protesting about this. You know, she several months ago was protesting because a little coal mine was being restarted in Germany. OK, which is fine. But those coal mines are being restarted in Germany. Because Germany's been cut off from natural gas from Russia by this war and by U.S.-led sanctions and by the destruction of those pipelines. Which is an so ecological if you really disaster. Care about this, yes. Yeah. If you care about this issue, you should really care about those pipelines, though incredibly. And again, I have to blame, you know, the Democratic Party and its base for not calling for that and not seeming to care that this happened. Of course, the other thing it did, the second reason people should care is because if the U.S. was behind the sabotage of that pipeline, it also means the U.S. was behind sabotaging the economies of its allies in Western Europe, particularly Germany's, but also the U.K.'s and others. That is a huge issue. 
And that Biden would have done this without congressional authorization. And apparently he didn't even inform Congress he was going to do it. In engaging in really what is an act of war, not just against Russia, but against its own allies. To me, is an arguably impeachable offense. But again, very few people seem to care. But this is the most important story in decades. And people are ignoring it. And that it's just not justifiable. Well, let me remind our listeners, you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifico Radio, and that's the voice of our guest today, Daniel Kovalik. We're discussing Ukraine and his views of it. Uh, We started by uh, talking about his book, The Plot to uh, Scapegoat Russia, which was released, published in 2017. But Dan, I mean, I I have so much more to talk to you about. It's, It's... First of all, you know, this idea of spheres of influence, because I remember growing up during the Cold War, right? I'm one of those duck and cover babies, right? Or kids who had to hide under his desk with his arm behind his neck and his arm in front of his face and was told that that was going to save me from a nuclear blast. Of course, none of us really believed it. Uh, and the Cuban Missile Crisis, of course. And I remember in part of the lexicon of the U.S. during the Cold War that I grew up with was this concept of spheres of influence, that Cuba was within the U.S. sphere of influence. Therefore, Russia had no right in encroachment. Of course, this goes back to the theory and the ideas of the Monroe Doctrine and how Latin America you know, is the U.S. backyard and sphere of influence and that no other country could impinge upon that exceptional claim that the United States often uses to justify its foreign policy. Now, suddenly we have what is being called an encroachment on Russia's sphere of influence, which is being portrayed not as that, but as a war of liberation. And just this week, Russia announced that they are going to be putting short-range nuclear missiles in Belarus, and that today in the headlines, it has gotten to the point where they're talking about placing strategic nuclear weapons in Belarus and those surrounding areas around Ukraine. To the point where now a top UN official today is urgently calling, the headline is, for de-escalating nuclear tensions over Belarus. My question is, since, am I recalling incorrectly that the U.S. really had a huge investment in this concept of spheres of influence? And doesn't, don't U.S. policymakers realize that they are flipping, you know, flipping the meaning and now calling this encroachment and wanting to have a, a an ally closer to as part of NATO, which is right on the mainland with Russia, where they could theoretically also place strategic nuclear weapons. Don't U.S. policy makers consider this escalation getting out of hand, that there are so many parts to this and so much invested in the propaganda and in winning this war against the evil Russia, this could easily go sideways. Yes, well, and, and honest people have called what's happening right now in the, U- in the Ukraine co- conflict and even before with NATO's encroachment up to Russia's borders, right? You, NATO has troops and nuclear missiles up to Russia's borders. That needs to be pointed out. And, and, the US, and the U.S. would never accept the same thing. If Russia no, would do didn't. something similar in Mexico, and I've heard that argument, I actually had that, I made that argument or said that argument early on, the United States would never accept Russia or any other nation stationing, doing the same thing in Mexico, for example. 
Absolutely not. And again, how do we know this? Because when the, the Soviets tried it once in Cuba in 1962, the U.S. was ready to go to war over that. And uh, in 13 days, uh, thankfully, Kennedy and Khrushchev negotiated us, uh, uh, us out of that possible nuclear conflict. But the world was on edge knowing a nuclear conflict might come because the U.S. would never put up with that. In the end, it was Kennedy negotiated by saying he, in return for the Soviet Union removing the missiles from Cuba, uh, the U.S. would not attack Cuba again and it uh, would remove its own missiles. Yeah, it's, it's, often, it's often touted as one of the greatest moments of diplomacy in the history of the world at that right. moment. Right? And we have no such diplomacy now on our end. Okay, the first of all, which needs to be said, Biden, far from trying to negotiate a solution to this problem in Ukraine, to, to even he could have easily prevented uh, the Russian intervention in Ukraine last year by simply saying that Ukraine would not be part of NATO and that Ukraine would stop attacking the Donbass. Far from doing that, the U.S. ignored Russia's legitimate security concerns and legitimate looking at it from their point of view, again, if, if they were us. And you point out Mexico, and really what happened, just to put a finer point on, what the U.S. would never tolerate is the following in Mexico, but this is exactly what they want Russia to tolerate in Ukraine, okay? It would be as if Russia in 2014 installed a right-wing government or whatever, a government, a pro-Russian government, in Mexico City, that had animus towards its English-speaking population, let's assume there is a big one somewhere, uh, in the north of Mexico, and that Russia supported the new government in Mexico to attack those English-speaking people, mostly from the United States, um, in Mexico, and that 14,000 people died as a result. And hundreds of thousands of immigrants from Mexico flooded into the U.S. fleeing that conflict. And then Russia was threatening or certainly wouldn't guarantee that Mexico would not become part of a new Warsaw Pact. Well, and built and built a multinational alliance that pumped in billions of dollars of weaponry to that government. Right. The U.S., what I'm saying is so absurd because... The U.S. wouldn't have allowed that to go on for eight years. They wouldn't have allowed it to go on for eight days, okay? And that we can't see things from the Russians' perspective on this is incredible. You know, and the problem also, you talk about spheres of influence. Here's the other problem. Countries like Russia and China, for example, who we vilify so much, they see their spheres of influence as on their borders of their own country. The U.S. sees its sphere of influence as everywhere, right? The U.S. sees the South China Sea as its influence. It sees the Persian Gulf as its sphere of influence. It sees Ukraine as its sphere of influence. The U.S. thinks it has the right to total domination of the entire Earth. And that's how we got into this problem to begin with, right? That is unacceptable and it's untenable and it's not sustainable. This is what is going to lead us into another world war. And again, that not enough Americans see that and reject it 
is incredible because it doesn't make any sense. You can't say, oh, we're worried about China's maneuvers in the South China Sea. It's called the South China Sea. It's not the U.S. Sea. Oh, we're worried about Iran and the Persian Gulf. It's called the Persian Gulf. Maybe the Persians have a right. They have some mind. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, the, the, the view is that it's our world and you're just living in it. Yeah. And we say, you know, but what is happening, the truth is, and why most of the world, in truth, is siding with Russia in this. And that's a fact. Uh, outside of Western Europe, outside of the North America, not including Mexico. Important point. Mm-hmm. Uh, outside of Australia, New Zealand, and Japan, the rest of the world is siding with Russia. And why? Because they're tired of the U.S. claiming that it owns the world. They're tired of the U.S. and NATO invading countries like Afghanistan and Iraq and Libya and Somalia and Serbia at will, going halfway around the world to engage in wars of choice. And the world has said, we're done. And they see Russia, and this is the truth, and people have to understand this, they see Russia as finally standing up, not only for itself, but the rest of the world in saying that, that enough is enough. And again, that that people can't see that and can't empathize with that in a certain way uh, means we're doomed, right? Because we would not be able to negotiate our way out of a situation that we don't understand. And that is and it's quickly escalating. That is escalating to possible nuclear conflict. Every day we're moving closer and closer to that. And, you know, I've heard people like uh, Colonel Douglas uh, McGregor, who's also very good on this issue say things like, you know, up till now, every U.S. president has seen their main job as preventing a nuclear war, right? That that would be the worst thing that could happen to us and for all of humanity and really took steps to try to prevent that. Even Reagan, who was a a warmonger in his own right in many ways, did a lot to ratchet down, really to end the Cold War and to uh, ratchet down the nuclear standoff with us and the Soviet Union. Instead, yeah, Biden, who is doing everything to stir that up. And again, people who are in the Democratic Party have to say, we don't want this. This is not right. Uh, You're our president, and uh, you shouldn't be doing that. You need to prevent a nuclear war, which could wipe out all of human life. Um, again, instead, the liberals seem to be going along with it. And mm. you see crazy articles in like the New York Times with people arguing for at least a limited nuclear war, if there is such a thing. Yeah, it's too bad. It's too bad there's 1.5 million children in the United States who are, who are homeless, living out of cars and having no place to, to bathe and, 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 and are under Mal- malnourished, uh, uh, too bad they don't have a flag that people can put on their social media accounts. Yeah, well, of course, you've seen the memes where, you know, you'll see a homeless guy draped in a Ukrainian flag, hoping hope, hoping that'll get him some help, right? Um, yeah, it's incredible. And again, I the people don't see it. It's just, it, it, it it's anger provoked. Uh, the people who I had confidence in that I, you know, used to go to peace marches with, don't see this. It just shows the extent of the propaganda. Um, oh, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna, get, we're gonna, we're gonna garner the, uh, you know, the usual remarks about, you know, you, you, you know, you're a puppet, you're a stooge of Putin, right? You, you know that, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. That is, that is what, what 
people quiet. You, you, you understand it would all be critical and to question the propaganda and the policy, you know, is in itself a de facto admission of being funded by Russia somehow. Right. And people are being punished for that. By the way, your introduction to me is still good through April, but after that, it won't be. I just lost my teaching job at Pitt. Oh. Um, and I think largely over my public position on what's happening in Ukraine. And this is what's happening. People are being punished in silence. There goes academic freedom. Yeah, there is none. The academy doesn't want to hear the other side, particularly on this issue. Well, and what I don't understand is, you know, if we call ourselves a democracy, that explicitly means an informed constituency. And that information comes through discourse of divergent views. That's at the heart of what I would believe is de democratic discourse. So why shouldn't we have this discussion? Why shouldn't we present this alternative view when so much of the overwhelming view that we're receiving in the mainstream media, right? And I, could, I can call them mainstream because it's still absolutely true. Look it up, folks, that six corporations own 90% of the media in the United States. That's a fact. Why shouldn't we have alternative discourses like this, Dan? They're important, aren't they, too? If we're going to call ourselves, you know, quote, unquote, a democratic nation. Yeah, well, of course, I agree with you. You know, but again, the truth of the matter is that most people who say they, they want freedom and democracy don't necessarily really want that. You know what comes to mind? I think about this scene all the time. The scene from Easy Rider. I don't know if you remember. Oh, yeah. Jack Nicholson's talking to Dennis Hopper and they're talking about freedom. And Jack Nicholson says, he says, you know, and people who say they want freedom, you know, when they meet someone who's truly free are the first ones who want to shut him down. Right. In the next scene, he's beaten to death right. with baseball bats in his sleeping bag. Right. Maybe. And I think that that says it all. I mean, people can talk about oh, democracy, freedom. First of all, what do those things mean? And second of all, is that what you want or you just want people to, you know, fit into your own worldview? And I think mostly it's the latter most of the time. Well, I want to thank you, Dan. Uh, great conversation. I didn't really get it enough into your experience, you know, in Donbass and Donetsk and the other places that you visited. Just as it was just last November, you were there. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm going, back. I'm going and back in three weeks. Yeah. Well, exactly. we can't, I can't wait to debrief you and hear what you got to say then. I, I just Before I let you go, I just want to remind our listeners that John J. Mersheimer, M-E-A-R-S-H-E-I-M-E-R, -E -E is an international relations theorist. He is the R. Wendell Harrison Distinguished Service Professor in the Political Science Department at the University of Chicago. Find his articles. They are the counterpoint to the mainstream media, as well as Dan's excellent book, The Plot to Scapegoat Russia, which I think sets the context perfectly, as I said earlier in, in, in our interview. Playing with Fire in Ukraine, the Underappreciated Risks of Catastrophic Escalation by Mersheimer, and another article he wrote, Why the West is Principally Responsible for the Ukrainian Crisis. And I'm sure you agree, Dan, that those are our, our listeners should read those, as well as your excellent book, The Plot to Scapegoat Russia. Kevin, thank you. This was a pleasure. My pleasure. Again, that was Dan Kovalik. He's an American lawyer and human rights advocate who currently teaches internet. Oh, I do. Currently. Okay. <laughs> Who's, <laughs> who is 
going to lose his job soon teaching international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Uh, most importantly, he's the author of several books, including his most recent, The Plot to Overthrow Venezuela, How the U.S. is Orchestrating a Coup for Oil. Dan, thanks again. Hey, thank you, Kevin. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. And today I want to turn our attention to a very special place, a place that's very close to my heart and I'm sure many people's hearts in the community and across the country, really. And that's the battle over People's Park that is still being waged in Berkeley after all of these years. Um, I was one of the producers of a film called Berkeley in the 60s, if you haven't seen it, uh, produced by Mark Kitchell. Uh, and directed by Mark Kitchell. And there's a real great section of that film which gives you great background to the history of People's Park, including the sacrifice of lives in order to keep this as a sanctuary and memory largely of the counterculture movement and of the anti-war movement and the depth of the anti-war movement that occurred in Berkeley. I don't know, folks maybe don't know this, but you know, the, uh, the, the, the National Guard, Reagan Center, the National Guard, and they occupied Oakland and Berkeley for a period of time because of the resistance that people in places like People's Park and the streets of Berkeley and the streets of Oakland offered against that, that horrendous war, the Vietnam War, uh, that was waged in the name of the American people. My two guests today are contemporaries who are still fighting that good fight for People's Park. Joining us today is Joe Leisner. He's an, he was, uh, amazingly, an organizer for the Mississippi Freedom Summer with Bob Moses. He organized for 23 years with Food Not Bombs. Today, he's part of the Omni Collective in Oakland, and he's on the People's Park Historic District Advocacy Group. And joining us also is Harvey Smith, who's a longtime resident of Berkeley. He has lived there since 1966. He's also a member of the People's Park Historic District Advocacy Group. Uh, Joe and Harvey, welcome to Flashpoints today. Nice to be here, Kevin. Well, listen, let's let's start with a little bit of, of where the historical significance, what is, in your view, and let's start with Harvey, what is, it in, in your view, the historical significance of People's Park contemporaneously today? Why should people value People's Park as a historic site? Well, it's for some of the things that you were just saying, uh, Kevin. Uh, but, you know, the park has a long history. And uh, our group worked to get the park on the National Register of Historic Places. So this issue really goes beyond Berkeley. It goes beyond California. It's a national historic site. And unlike other uh, uh, historic sites from the same period, um, you can look at Woodstock or you can look at Kent State that are also on the National Register. Mm -hmm. However, those sites are commemorated for events that happened over 50 years ago. So People's Park is a very live, happening, uh, continuous um, uh, place that, that has existed and and um, and is given to the pe- to the people of Berkeley and the, the nation as a whole. Um, it's a cultural site. It's a historic site, uh, and it, it's a very also very essential, important open space in the most densely populated part of Berkeley and a part of Berkeley that is uh, planned to become even more populated. 
Okay, Joe Leisner, let's bring you in this conversation now. Let's talk about where that is now and what the issue is. UC Berkeley wants to build housing there, much needed student housing. And local residents claim that People's Park has become a cesspool, for want of a better word, a sanctuary for uh, unruly homeless people who are on drugs. So how how is the person, someone who doesn't know much about People's Park, what's, what's, what's your view of that? What's at stake in People's Park today? Good question. It's very important that it is answered honestly. And the honest answer is, if you look at the park today, there are serious problems. The thing is, the problems could have been addressed long ago and more seriously by UC if they simply maintained the park the way they maintain their other properties and the campus. Um, there's no... They don't maintain um, it? They don't maintain it? No. They have always uh, worked against the people that were trying to improve the park, that were trying to um, use the park to serve the people that needed um, food that didn't have clothing. We do not advocate um, the park as a place of habitation. The, the problems with, um, with that have just shown themselves recently to be more than we can deal with. Our vision for the park is a place that continues, you know, to advocate for people that need um, a sort of sanctuary from the corporate police state that we currently seem to live in. But um, the university, I think it's hard not to see that leaving the park to deteriorate to the point that it has today um, has served them well. It's, it's actually created this image of the park as a place that needs to be, um, well, their intent is to destroy it. They claim that they're going to revitalize the park, but that's sheer hypocrisy. Um, they've never been really interested in um, taking care of the park. As I've been working for Food Not Bombs over the years, simple things like asking the university's permission to have waste management come on the property to pick up, you know, our leftovers at the end of the meal, they wouldn't agree to that. They've cut down free boxes where we attempted to give out clothing. So we do have a vision for the park and we, we want to, you know, work with the university to find the housing site somewhere else where it won't destroy a site that's on the national register. And we can have them both. If the university would agree to some sort of cooperative venture. And let me remind our listeners, you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio, and my guests are, you just heard the voice of Joe Leisner. Uh, he's with the People's Park Historic District Advocacy Group, along with Harvey Smith, who is also part of that group and a longtime resident who's been in Berkeley since 1966. Harvey, where's the legal battle at? Now, there's been a legal battle around People's Park. Uh, where is that at today? Well, at, at this very point, um, the, uh, we just won uh, in the Court of Appeals. So uh, a three-judge panel decided uh, there were five issues before the court. They decided uh, on, in our favor on two of them. 
and one of one of them was that the university uh, did not um, look at alternative sites, and that's required under the law. And they saw that very clearly. The other one was noise, and what what UC has done and has really put out a lot of disinformation about this case and. And it has, um, and I think in the way Joe was describing about the park in general, but the, there, so we won on, on those two issues. What they've done is that they've blown the issue of noise all out of proportion, saying that this is, this is gloom and doom, that, that the CEQA law has to be changed because of this. And almost totally ignoring in their public statements the fact that the court also found they did not explore alternatives, which is our essential issue. The other thing that they did in terms of disinformation was that they described the opposition to the park. So our group and the other, uh, the, the co-plaintiff as NIMBY neighbors, hmm. meaning not in our backyard. And th that is um, a total lie because our group um, is not from a specific neighborhood. It's, it's made up of people from all over Berkeley, all over California, all over the country, and we have a few supporters from outside the country. So there's well over 250 people that have either supported us, uh, signed on and endorsed uh, Saving the Park, or, or have also contributed funds to pursue the lawsuit. So at this point, the university... Um, is going to appeal to the Supreme Court. And they keep losing in court, but they keep going back back to the court. Um, so we'll see. Uh, what, what they have tried to do, was to do, and, and they did this uh, somewhat successful, successfully on another case, was do an in run. They, they, the, the, in the other case, it was one in the Supreme Court, and they went to the legislature and, and asked the legislature to change CEQA. So uh, the California Environmental Quality Act. Mm. Um, and we, we assume that they'll probably do this, too, because unfortunately, uh, some of the media and, and some of the legislators um, and even the governor have um, picked up on their disinformation, uh, called our group a NIMBY neighbor, you know, focused on the noise issue rather than, alter than alternatives. Not in my backyard, so, right? You're right. Not in my backyard. So um, so there's there's big money opposition to CEQA because uh, there are people, real estate developers, the utilities, uh, the oil industry that does, doesn't want any guard work, guard work for rails. Um, they don't, they don't want no the, regulation. They don't want the precedent. They, excuse me. They don't want the precedent to be established. Oh, right? uh, yeah. Well, yeah, the, the, this is it, it would it would be a, a kind of precedent, but what what actual fact-based investigation of CEQA shows, and this was done by the Rose Foundation, who did a study um, to show that CEQA really actually has little impact on, on halting development, but it has a lot of impact in protecting the environment. Uh, so, so that's the core issue, but you know, industry, big industries, big corporations don't want to have any uh, regulation. Um, look at, right. I think, a parallel example, although it's more graphic, is the railroad industry. You know, despite constant train wrecks, they, they want to be less regulated, not more regulated. And I think that's, mm -hmm. that's similar here in California uh, around issues of 
the California Environmental Quality Act. And finally, yeah, if I could just yeah, sure, add, ahead, if, if you look at things, the pro-development um, faction is always waiting for um, uh, an opportunity to jump in with um, a long-standing um, attempt to neutralize and um, sort of take a lot of the power out of CEQA. CEQA is recognized by many groups. A group called CEQA uh, Works is 200 different environmental groups that attest to um, all the good CEQA has done. And it's not used very often. Only 2% of the cases that are ever required to have EIRs actually go under litigation. So it's a really a red herring. And they're using words like we're holding housing hostage and we're weaponizing CEQA. And it's really disgusting to hear the, the governor use words like that. It's very, um, very much using kind of hate language. You, you, governor Newsom is describing the California Environmental Quality Act that way? Yes. That, that he's describing us as using it that way. It's kind of like being branded as a terrorist without actually saying it. It's, it's dog whistle language. Well, I wonder why haven't you folks created a nonprofit conservancy and raised either private money to purchase the land from the university, come up with an agreement to purchase it from them, which I, I'm sure they, they don't want, and or work with the city of Berkeley. You know, let's get the next progressive government in there, city government in there, and let's talk about public domain, or let's talk about the city taking over that, that parcel of land in the name of maintaining its historic integrity. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what Harvey and I have been working on. I just got done yesterday talking to somebody from the Trust for Public Land. Well, the first thing is th that um, the university has to be forced, I imagine, either through legal or the court of public opinion, to agree to transfer some aspect of their ownership. That could be done, as you say, in two ways, either through a conservancy called a conservancy easement or actually, you know, selling the land, uh, the actual deed. And, of course, they keep saying that they have unwavering dedication to building the, the housing on the park. So that avenue hasn't been open to us, but we do realize that that's the way to go. The other hard part is the city um, is not at all able to see the importance of the park, the fact that um, they're just creating all kinds of dangerous situations, wasting now a half a year, and it probably is going to go much longer with the appeal to the Supreme Court, wasting time, no student housing is getting done, and millions of dollars have been um, wasted. So that's what we want to do, Kevin. Well, and there's, um, and, we and, just, and, there's and, and and let's be honest, uh, folks who know Berkeley politics know that, you know, the, the, today's city government is a far cry from when Gus Newport was mayor, for example. Right? There's been this slow slide to the right, getting closer to, as you said, developers' interests in the city of Berkeley. Would you? Would you? Would you agree with that? Absolutely, and um, we yeah. have uh, a very 
uh, important document from Gus and Shirley, two of the former mayors, that are saying, let's get this housing project built on an alternative site that pays respect to the importance of people's park and stop wasting time. Um, but the city hasn't even recognized the fact that we're on the National Register. After five years of writing a very tedious document and having it, you know, approved unanimously by the um, Office of Historic Preservation, the city won't even recognize it. And at the same time, they, they dare to say that um, the university will write some sort of memorial when they... Um, should they win and build on the park? Well, they don't have the right to do that. They wouldn't even, they were the only people that wrote a letter of objection to us being nominated for the National Register, the University of California, that is. And the, the chairman of the commission, when they voted unanimously, was just incensed by the fact that they would write the only letter of opposition. How can you oppose the national um, history? historic importance of people's spark, but well, they so, did. Some, some, some folks might say that that's indicative of the uh, sort of corporate education <laughs> direction that the UC system has been going in anyway. They're finding themselves more closer to, 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 to running their own university, their own house, as a corporate entity for profit rather than as an educational institution that's going to serve the diversity and the majority of the people in our state of California. Listen, guys, uh, I'm going to go. Uh, again, this is Flashpoint South Pacific Radio, and you're listening to my guest today, Joe Leisner and Harvey Smith. Both of them represent the People's Park Historic, Historic District Advocacy Group. But you guys wanted to talk about a very important anniversary date that's coming up and celebration. Yes, it is the 54th anniversary of the founding of People's Park. And we're going to celebrate it on August 23rd in the park. Um, it will be um, um, before the uh, actual anniversary, there'll be a, an eco-fest that'll be at 11 o'clock. And then at 12 o'clock, it will be um, music, speakers. And this year, because of the passing of the founder of the park, Mike Delacour, there will be many speakers talking about Michael's important um, contribution and fight for justice and um, uh, the park. So please come out. All right. Again. Yeah. And also sorry, go ahead. Mm -hmm. check out our website, People's Park Historic District Advocacy Group. Just Google it. I can't thank you guys enough for joining me today here on Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks so much, Kevin.